I bring you greetings from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare you, day of the Lord. Make straight a path. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. After our discussion on the fundamentals of the laying of hands, we shall in this broadcast be looking at when laying of hands should occur. We have already seen that laying of hands is for the purpose of transferring spiritual benefits or blessings on another person that it is the invocation of such blessings upon someone in the name of God. We have seen also that laying of hands should be at the direction of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you should be led by the Spirit of God before you lay hands on people. We also mentioned that laying of hands should be from one who has spiritual authority over another person. In other words, don't allow a random person lay hands on you and don't lay hands randomly on people. Except, of course, it is for the purpose of healing, then fine, you can lay hands on people. We also saw that laying of hands should not be done, especially where the recipient is to be consecrated to spiritual office until due diligence, due spiritual diligence is done on that person or and the Holy Spirit has signed off on it. In other words, there is no need rushing to go and lay hands on somebody when the Holy Spirit has not signed off on it and when you have not observed due diligence. You need to find out about that person's life in the office, at work, his place of residence, in the church, and in relating to other people, generally speaking. So a lot has to be done. For example, you look at his family life. How does his wife carry herself? What of his children? How do they behave themselves? There's a lot to be done. It's not just to lay hands on somebody and be feeling okay that you have laid hands on someone. Similarly, when it comes to you going for hands to be laid on you, you need to also do due diligence on who is going to lay hands on you. Number one, let's assume it's a random thing. Test for fruit. Somebody sees you on the street and says, oh, let me lay hands on you so that God can bring a blessing upon you. You just don't do that. Who is this person? You don't know him. Don't submit your head for laying on hands. You don't do that. Then listen to the Holy Spirit. Don't be moved by testimonies of, oh, that man, when he lays hands on you, everything will be cured. Don't be moved by that. Allow the Spirit of God to lead you. So let's go to what we want to discuss today. That is, when should hands be laid on someone? At what point or under what condition or for what purpose should hands be laid on people? Number one, generally, when you are about to impart a blessing on someone. In Genesis chapter 48, I'm just going to read a few verses of scripture there. From verse 14, then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has led me all my life, long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, you can continue to read, but there are some things I just want to point out here. The Bible made clear that when he was laying hands on these children, that is Joseph's children, he crossed his hands. He placed his right hand on the younger one and his left hand on the older one. Of course, later, you, if you read that further, you discover that Joseph at that point said to the father, no, 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 he was upset because for some reason, there's something about the right hand being laid on someone. And so he said, no, no, no. This is the elder one. The right hand should be on the elder one. And the father said, don't worry, I know what I'm doing. The older one will also be blessed, but the younger will be greater than the older. And 
He went ahead and blessed them. How did that happen? He knew by the Spirit of God that that was what ought to be done. So a father, a spiritual father or a father who is spiritual can lay hands on his son or spiritual son as the case may be and impart a blessing on such a child. In Mark chapter 10, verse 13 to 16. Then they brought little children to him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. So generally speaking, when somebody is to be blessed, hands can be laid on that person. Usually, again, a person of spiritual authority, one like a biological father who is a Christian, can lay hands on his children and bless them. When your children are about to return to school, you can call them to a room and lay hands on them and bless them and send them forth in the name of God. Secondly, again, this would be a general case when you are praying for healing. You can lay hands when you are praying for healing. Acts chapter 9, verse 17 and 18. This was when Ananias laid hands on Saul. Bible says, And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, that is on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Here we find that the regaining of sight for Saul of Tarsus was achieved when hands of Ananias were laid upon him, as the Lord Jesus Christ had directed Ananias in Acts chapter 28, verse 8. We read another story on how Paul laid hands on some fellow and he was healed. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went in to him and prayed and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So for healing purposes, hands can be laid and prayer made over that person. In Luke chapter 4, we read of the Lord Jesus Christ doing a similar thing. Luke chapter 4 verse 40. The Bible says, when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, that is to Jesus, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. We've talked about impartation, the transference of spiritual benefit upon people. One of these is this matter of healing. In Luke chapter 13, verse 11 to 13, again we read about the woman who was bent for about 18 years, and the Lord called her to himself, prayed for her, and laid hands on her, and she recovered. Laying on of hands is for the purpose of healing. It can be done when you want to pray over somebody who is sick, somebody who requires a healing touch from above. We've seen the Lord Jesus Christ do that when he healed people who were blind. So for the purpose of healing, you can lay hands on people. Thirdly, now we move to some more specific areas that require some more, should I say, caution and due diligence to be observed. Thirdly, when imparting spiritual gifts or Holy Spirit baptism. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, this is a scripture that we are going to discuss more on as we go on in this study. Paul here writing to Timothy says, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you 
through the laying on of my hands. Paul is saying to Timothy, when I laid hands on you, spiritual gifts were put upon you. Stir it up. Act on that by faith. And we are going to discuss that as we close. You need faith. And so he said, stir it up. Because when I laid hands on you, spiritual gifts were imparted upon you. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, again, the same thing is writing to Timothy. He says, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. So when hands are laid on people, spiritual gifts, the gifts of word of wisdom, word of knowledge, the gift of faith, the gifts of healings, the gifts of walking of miracles, of descending of spirits, of tongues, of interpretation of tongues, is imparted upon the person that hands are being laid upon. And by inference, that is also the baptism with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, verse 14, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So as hands are being laid on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. They will receive spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit baptism upon an individual. And all that is being said here is that as hands are being laid on people, spiritual gifts come upon them. An impartation of the gifts of God come upon such people. In Acts chapter 19, verse 6, again, the Bible says, And when Paul had laid hands on them, that is the 12 disciples, that he had just brought to the full knowledge of the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ and had baptized them in water. The Bible says in verse 6, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. One of the things that we find when the Holy Spirit comes upon an individual is boldness, speaking in tongues, prophesying, and so on and so forth. When there is the impartation of spiritual gifts or Holy Spirit baptism upon someone, when somebody is being prayed for to receive it, hands are laid on people. The fourth condition or time when hands can be laid is when there's the consecration of a believer unto divine service. When somebody is being set apart or consecrated to serve Almighty God, hands can be laid on that person. Acts chapter 6. Verse 3 to 6. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Permanus, and Nicholas, a proselyte, from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. These were actually the first set of deacons that were ordained in the church of God. So you can lay hands for consecration and also for ordination. But let's discuss consecration onto divine service at this time. And you will see that they were careful about who they were laying hands on for divine service. They were very, very careful. There were recommendations about who these people would be. He said, choose seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we might appoint over this business. And then they laid hands on them. And when it comes to verse 5, he spoke about Stephen and said, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In many of our churches today, 
we don't follow the injunctions in scripture before we lay hands on people for consecration unto divine service or for ordination into the office of a minister. So let me read 1 Timothy chapter 3 from verse 1 to 13. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. These are qualities that are required before you can say you want to consecrate somebody as a bishop. Then he goes on, not given to wine, nor violent, nor greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. As you go through this, you begin to wonder, you begin to question many of the people who have been so ordained or consecrated as bishops. And you start wondering, what was the criterion or the criteria that were used in setting these people apart and ordaining them. In verse 4, it says, One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. So you can see, before you ordain a bishop or a pastor, as the case may be, you have to look at his family. His family life is important. His children, you are assessing the man, not just the man alone, but his wife, his children, his interaction with other people, one who is known well outside even of the church. We're going to see that as we read on. In verse 5, it says, For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest, being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Don't bring somebody who is a young believer and say you want to consecrate him onto divine service. No, let him go through training. Let him go through the grind. Let him understand spiritual things. Let him understand what it takes and what it means. This rushing of wanting to ordain people into pastorate or whatever, we have to be very, very careful. We have to be guided by scriptural principles. Let's be puffed up with pride. So you can find a lot of people get into these positions and become proud and arrogant. And God does not come near the proud. The Bible says he regards them from afar. He cannot come near them. So I don't know how you want to invoke the name of God upon a proud person or somebody who is a novice who will become proud and arrogant tomorrow. In verse 7, it says, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside. He is talking of unbelievers. People who are in the world, when we say good testimony, it's not as if they are going to speak well of him all the time. But they will make statements that will let you know that this guy has a good testimony as a Christian. For example, they can say that, that one, anytime you want to say something, he will begin to bring up the name of Jesus. We don't even know what kind of person that. That's a good report. But when you hear, ah, he enjoys our jokes, he cracks jokes with us. In fact, we even go to nightclubs with him and you know, well, he does a few strange things here and there. But well, he's a human being. You know that that is a problem. So moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Verse 8, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. Truth must be coming out of the mouth of a pastor, from the mouth of a deacon. You can't be telling lies. You can't be making all kinds of strange statements, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let this also first be tested. Before you even consider them as deacons, let them be tested. Give them small assignments to do. Oh, go and pray for this brother. Go and pray for that sister. Go and lead prayers in the church. And then you are checking them at home. You are visiting them unannounced in their place of work. You're getting to know them. You would observe some things and you would know those things. It's not something you do in a couple of months. No, it takes time. You have to know them. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. That is not preaching the scriptures because it's looking for money or fame or any of those strange things. But let these also be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, 
been found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent and not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. This is basically the same thing as that of a bishop. You cannot extricate family life from when you are assessing somebody for consecration unto divine service. In verse 13 it says, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So we need to be very, very careful when we are getting into the area of consecration to divine service and when we get into the area of ordination. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2 and 3, let me read from verse 1 for context. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Serene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. In other words, they pronounced the blessing of God upon them unto the divine service that the Holy Spirit had called them to. So here again you find that they were in the place of prayer and fasting and the Holy Spirit said, Separate these men to me. I have work for them. Before hands were laid, they did not just lay hands casually on Barnabas and Saul. They laid hands on them, having heard from the Spirit of God. We don't know how the Holy Spirit said to them, separate these men unto me. The point is, they all knew that these people had been chosen by God. It was not something that was done by men. It was not a casual thing. And so when hands were laid in sending them away, they were laying hands to bring upon them whatever spiritual graces would be needed for this new venture. In fact, this is how the first missionary journey was initiated. And so they needed a special grace for this activity. And they were prayed for, hands were laid on them, and they were sent away with the blessing of the eldership of the church. So generally speaking, when we're imparting a blessing, a spiritual father or a father who is spiritual can bless his children or his grandchildren and pronounce a blessing upon them. Secondly, when you are praying for healing, the Bible talks about, is anyone sick? Let him send for the elders. Let them pray over that person, anointing with oil, obviously laying hands upon him as well. And the prayer of faith will cause healing to come upon the sick person. Thirdly, when you are imparting spiritual gifts or Holy Spirit baptism upon people, you lay hands on them for that purpose. In fact, I think it's in Romans chapter 1 verse 11, where Paul was writing the Roman church that he intends to visit them so that he can impart upon them some spiritual blessings. And fourthly, we have said, when you want to consecrate people unto divine service. And this one, we were very careful to note that you have to observe due diligence. Don't lay hands on people just like that. Observe due diligence. Check them out. Check them at home. At random, don't inform them that you're coming. Check them in the place of work. At random, some people have a way of masquerading. When they come to church, they are a different person in church. They are a different person in their business transactions. They are a different person in their place of work or at home. So we need to be very, very careful. Finally, when you want to ordain somebody as a minister of God, hands are laid on such people. Let's pick an Old Testament example first to see the principle behind it. And then we apply it for the New Testament believer. Numbers chapter 27. God had told Moses 
that his time was up. And Moses had asked, what do I do? Who do I hand over to? And from verse 18 of Numbers 27, the Bible tells us, And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eliezer the priest, and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He should stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word, they shall go out, and at his word, they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eliezer, the priest, and before all the congregation. And he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him or consecrated him or ordained him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So Joshua was now commissioned as the successor to Moses. But again, you can see that the Holy Spirit told him, the Spirit of God is in this fellow. So you just don't commission people. Before you can ordain somebody to the office of minister of God, to the office of bishop or prophet or whatever, the person must have the Holy Spirit in him. You can't just lay hands on anybody. And for quite some time, for that matter. So by doing that, Moses was transferring, as it were, his authority upon Joshua and asking him to go ahead and do whatever he needed to do. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9. Now Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom for or because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Joshua was full of wisdom. Why? Because Moses had laid hands on him. Whatever was upon Moses, God had transferred as it were upon Joshua. By the time Moses exited, Joshua had now gained the grace to lead the people into the land of promise. There is a grace that comes upon a Christian when he is ordained into an office, when he is commissioned into an office. And that is why you have to observe due diligence. Some people have erroneously or wrongly, should I say, commissioned people without checking who they are. And these people end up creating problems in the place where they are holding office because they were never really vetted. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, which we looked at last week, it says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. What is he talking about? He's talking of ordination for eldership, for bishopric or deaconry. You have to observe due diligence. Don't be quick to ordain people. Let people have spent time. Know them. See how they are. Have they changed spiritually? Are they growing spiritually? Not something that you see in church and you don't check them out outside. And from time to time, you will hear discussions about them when it comes to business transactions. If people consider you to be open enough, they will come to you and discuss some things. I heard the story of a man who was to be ordained a pastor. They published his name and the wife went to the overseer of the church and said, my husband is still smoking. My husband is still running after women. She wasn't ratting him out as such. She understood what they were about to do to the man and that they could destroy the man spiritually. So they were thankful and they withdrew the ordination of the man. But the question is, how come they didn't observe due diligence? How come people don't discuss with the wives of pastors? How come they don't check out their children and see what is going on and put an ear to the ground? The work of a pastor or of an overseer is not a simple assignment because we are going to give an account of every single soul that we sent their names for ordination. So you have to be careful. 
You don't do it because you like somebody or because it's your friend. You must be sure of what you are doing. Ordination is not the same thing as sending somebody on an assignment. That's a different thing. People need to understand that ordination is not something to handle as though you are now going to gain something from it. No, it's for service. And having been ordained, you must serve. It's not about carrying a title. In Titus chapter 1 verse 5, Paul was writing to Titus about why he sent him to Crete. He said, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Appointing elders, that is ordaining them. So you need to check them out. And so in verse 6 it says, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So this is a grave assignment. It's not something that you do off the cuff. Check them out that they are able to teach by sound doctrine to exhort and convict those who contradict the word of God. Today we have seen people who say they are bishops who all they talk about is money. They cannot even teach sound doctrine. In verse 10 it says, For there are many insubordinate. Now he's speaking about the latter congregation. There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of this honest gain. So be careful. Don't just pick anybody and lay hands on him and say you're ordaining that person. No, check him out. And like I said, when we're looking at Acts chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, about Stephen, Philip, Nicanor, Timon, and Prochorus, Permanus, and so on and so forth, how they said, pick out men who are of good reputation, both within and without. Men who are filled with the Holy Ghost. Men who are full of faith. Men who are full of wisdom. Men that can be appointed to serve tables, to work hand in hand with the apostles and serve in the house of God. So ordination is not something that we handle casually. We must be very, very careful. So during ordination, hands are laid on people. So the five times when we lay hands on people, generally when you're imparting a blessing upon somebody, it's usually something that is between family or one who knows you your spiritual authority, like your pastor. Secondly, when you are praying for healing for other people, you lay hands on them. Thirdly, when you want to impart spiritual gifts upon someone or you want to pray for someone to receive the Holy Spirit, you lay hands on that person and pray that Almighty God would cause His Spirit to come upon the person or release spiritual gifts onto the person. Fourthly, when you want to consecrate somebody onto divine service or you are sending somebody into a particular area of divine service, as in the case of Barnabas and Saul, who were sent out to take the gospel to the Gentile world, consecrating them onto that service. When you want somebody to serve in a particular office, you lay hands on the person and say, may God go with you. May God grant you the grace and the wisdom with which to serve. Usually, impartation of gifts take place at the time of such laying of hands, even for consecration. So the graces that you need to function in the office of service that you are being consecrated into are released also upon you at the time. And finally, for the purpose of ordination into a particular office, the office of bishop, 
the office of deacon, the office of elder, usually office of bishop, elder, pastor, are basically the same thing. Or somebody's going to be consecrated into the office of prophet or apostle. Hands are laid on that person. The name of God is invoked upon that person. The gifts that go along with that office are put upon that person and he can run with it. When Paul was telling Timothy to stir up the gifts, he was saying to him that there are giftings in you. Don't be timid. Don't act as if when we lay hands on you, it was an ordinary thing. No, which brings us to a major issue here, that when hands are laid upon somebody, especially for the purpose of consecration, ordination, or even spiritual gifts, the faith of the recipient is important for him to gain the full benefit of the laying of hands. In the case of Timothy, it seemed Timothy was a young lad, and he probably must have felt timid. And Paul had to tell him that when I laid hands on you, something I've left read that again and read further than verse 6. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. How do you stir up the gifts? You act on it. For example, we're not going to read it. In 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon had gone to Gibeon to offer thanksgiving to God. In the night, the Lord came to him and said, ask what you want. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And God told him, I'm not only going to give you wisdom, but I will also give you what he did not ask for. And when Solomon woke up, he said, oh, it was a dream. That's what he thought. Then something happened. Two prostitutes had slept. One had lain upon her son and the son had died. And while the other one was sleeping, took the son of the other one to replace and took the dead son to the other fellow. So in the morning, the woman who had now had was lying with the dead child, looked and said, no, no, this is not my child. That's my child. And so there was a quarrel about whose child it was. So they took the matter to Solomon. It was at that place that Solomon gave a judgment that everybody considered to be wise. When they were arguing about, no, the dead child is mine. The living child is mine. No, it's mine. This is mine. They said, no, 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 no. Okay, you know what? Take a sword. Divide the living child. Give half to this one. Give half to the other one. Divide the dead child. Give half to this one and give half to the other one. And as they took the sword to divide the living child, the mother of the living child said, no, 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 no. Leave that child alone. Don't kill the child. Let her take the child if she wants the child. The one whose child had died. I said, go ahead and divide. So Solomon said, give the child to the one who is pleading that the child be kept alive. That is a rightful mother. What happened there? Wisdom came and he was able to do it. So when you are acting by faith, if hands have been laid on you, spiritual gifts have been put upon you, a challenge will arise. It is the gifting that is in you as you stir it up that you will now find that God would have given you the knowledge or the ability with which to solve the problem. So when you are given an assignment and hands are laid upon you, know that God who has instructed that has been laid upon you, has put upon you all the graces that you need to carry out that activity. So it is important that you act out in faith, recognizing what has happened to you. When Barnabas and Saul went out, all they did was they lay hands on them and they went. They didn't know anywhere, but they went over the places and God granted them favor. Why? Grace was placed upon them. So laying of hands is not something that we do casually. It's not something that is insignificant. It has a major significant role to play in the lives of those upon whom hands have been laid. When hands are laid on you for healing purposes, by faith recognize that you have been healed and you walk in that revelation. Yes, you might feel pain in your body. Satan can pinch you. doesn't mean that you are still sick. You are well. You are healed. So by faith, you move on and you begin to experience the grace or benefit upon you. Finally, let me note here that there is a variation to laying on of hands. Now, that variation 
is in the case of a large congregation. Sometimes you don't have the time to go and be laying hands on every single individual. So the minister can stand and stretch forth his hands towards the congregation or wave his hands over them and pray over them. That would be an impartation of spiritual blessing over a multitude of people, not necessarily laying hands individually on them. That would work when you are doing a general prayer, a general blessing over a congregation. But when it comes to the issue of imparting spiritual gifts, consecration unto divine service and ordination, it cannot be a waving of hand. There has to be a direct contact with the hand of the overseer or the pastor or the minister upon the person or persons to be so consecrated into those offices who require those spiritual giftings to come upon their lives. By the grace of God, next week we shall move on to the fifth of the foundational doctrines, which is the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. My prayer is that the Almighty God will help us as we continue to gain understanding. Let us note that we need to move away from these foundational doctrines. So we are laying it as a foundation, but we must afterwards move away from it and begin to build the pillars, as it were, of the Christian faith. And the Almighty God will help us. So until next week, by the grace of God, God bless you and goodbye.